Last week in Matthew chapter 1, we looked at verses 1 through 17, and Matthew opened his gospel by showing us the, the royal bloodline of Jesus, his, his, his ancestry that, that showed his right to sit on David's throne. And, and Matthew traced for us the lineage of Christ, not through his mother Mary, but through his adopted father, Joseph. And Matthew's gospel really tells us the story of Joseph and Joseph's side of, of the perspective of, of Christ coming into the world. Luke, of course, tells us Mary's uh, side of the story. And, and we're more familiar with the Luke account in Luke 1 and 2. In Luke, you have the shepherds. And in Luke, you have the angels appearing. And in Luke, you have uh, the, the Bethlehem scene and, and the manger and all of that. And so typically at Christmas time, we focus in on that Luke passage. And this passage in Matthew uh, sometimes is often overlooked. Uh, this morning, we sang that song, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. Uh, some of you may have looked at your calendar to say, "Is it? do I need to go start my Christmas shopping? Maybe you've already started, I don't know. Uh, but we're having Christmas in September uh, this morning. As we're going to see, uh, we don't know when Jesus was born. Did you know that? It could have been December 25th, but it probably wasn't. Maybe it was September the 4th. And so maybe we're really doing it justice uh, today. Nevertheless, we're looking at Matthew chapter 1. And what Matthew opens by saying is that God has been making promises to his people for the last 4,000 years and we've been waiting as, as God's people, we've been waiting as, as God's chosen people, the Israelites, for 4,000 years. But now in Christ Jesus, these promises are being brought to fulfillment. The, the Savior, the Messiah, the Christ, the King that we've been waiting for, Jesus is that King. And so uh, that story is going to continue to unfold for us uh, here today in our passage. And so... Matthew chapter 1, we're going to start in verse 18 today. It says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. And the angel told Joseph, he said, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the great truths contained within. Lord, we, 
We thank you even for the, the mysteries that had been described, Lord, by you through your prophets all throughout the ages, Lord, and how Matthew here is making it abundantly clear that Christ is the fulfillment of these mysteries. Lord, that now in Christ we have been saved, we have been set free of sin. Lord, as we study your word today, help us to live as your people, your chosen people. Lord, that you've called us to the kingdom for such a time as this. It's not an accident the day and age in which we are born, just as it wasn't an accident the day and age in which your son was born. So help us, Lord, to to live faithfully as your people, to be the light and the salt that our world so desperately needs. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, as I read through this, there's three main headings that I see that we're going to focus on today. For those of you that take notes, you'll appreciate this, as I often don't do this, but today I am. Number one, we're focusing on the king's arrival, the king's arrival. Number two, we'll look at the king's identity. And number three, the king's mission. The king's arrival, the king's identity, and the king's mission. So firstly, the king's arrival. Here Matthew gives us some of the details of what it was like to bring the Messiah into the world, for for the king to be born. And he describes the the background, the the history, some of the, the people that were at play, Joseph and Mary. And he tells us that Joseph and Mary were betrothed to one another. Now, that's similar to what we would call an engagement today. You could think that they were engaged to be married. And that is true, but the betrothal process and what betrothal meant in that day and age was much more than what we would think of as an engagement. A betrothal was a legal marriage. And so Joseph and Mary at this time were legally married to one another. In the eyes of the state, they were married. However, in the betrothal period, they didn't live as husband and wife. They didn't have a home together, and they didn't consummate their marriage. There was a a betrothal process, a betrothal period of time, which typically would have lasted about a year, in which the husband would have gone and prepared a house, prepared a home to bring his bride to of course, all of this foreshadowing uh, the, the, the ministry of Christ and Christ the husband and, and the, the bride of Christ the church, that Jesus right now has gone away and he's preparing a place for us. And one day he will come and he will take us to himself. Really right now the church lives as the, the betrothed to Christ. We live in this already but not yet sort of kingdom waiting for our husband, our king, to return and take us to himself. And the bride, Mary, and and all brides in this, they were expected, as should be expected, to live faithfully for her husband who would come and take her to consummate the marriage. This was a legal marriage. We see this because Joseph, in, in verse 19, is called her husband, And to break this marriage, to break this betrothal, it requires a legal divorce. 
He couldn't just say, I want my ring back and I never want to see you again. It wasn't like today where people could enter and exit out of uh, engagements. It was a legal marriage requiring a legal divorce. The bride price would have been paid by Joseph's family to Mary's family. That, that endowment, that engagement price would have been so that the, 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 uh, the, the wife's family could prepare the wedding supper, prepare the wedding feast, prepared for the, the wedding ceremony, which would present them together publicly as husband and wife. And so it's this period of planning, of looking forward to and anticipation. And Matthew tells us, as, as also as in Luke's account, that in this betrothal period, Mary is found to be with child. And she is not with child of Joseph. Matthew's very clear. She's of with child from the Holy Spirit. Now, Joseph doesn't know this. During the betrothal period, the husband and wife usually would never speak, would never speak to one another. In fact, most of these marriages were arranged marriages between the parents. And the husband and wife would meet each other at the wedding ceremony. How wonderful is that? I know a friend, I have a friend, a, a missionary. Many of you know him, a missionary from India, to India, uh, named Julius Marar. He was, uh, his marriage was arranged. He met his wife at their wedding. He said the car ride after the reception was really interesting when they first had their, con their first conversation. Yeah, nice to meet you. <laughs> what kind of food do you like? Uh, anyway. We do things differently in our culture. I would say, I, I, I wouldn't argue with that we do things better, uh, but we do things a little bit differently. And so uh, this is the setting. This is the setting into which Jesus is born. And so when, when, when Mary, we know that Mary, when, when the angel appears to her, Luke chapter 2, and says, you're going to give birth to the Messiah, the Savior of the world, and she says to the angel, uh, how, how will this happen? How can this be? I've, I've never known a man. I, I, I haven't uh, uh, been married. Uh, we haven't had our wedding ceremony yet. How will this be? And the, Holy, uh, the, the angel tells her, the Holy Spirit will overshadow you and, and that which will be conceived in your womb will be the Son of God. Mary says, let it be to me according to your word. She, she humbles herself under the word of God. She receives this from the Lord. But immediately after that, she goes and she visits her cousin for three months, Elizabeth. And then she returns three months later. And at some point as things tend to happen when you're pregnant, she starts to show that she's pregnant. And Joseph receives word. Uh, your wife is pregnant. Is it your baby? Have, have you two broken your covenant? Have you, have you broken this betrothal? Have you two come together uh, in, in breaking these traditions and breaking these customs? And Joseph says, it, it ain't my baby. It's not me. I'm not the dad. And so Joseph, it says, 
being a just man, he, he decides he's going to, just, that word just means righteous. He's someone who believes the word of God. He, he lives as a faithful Israelite, believing God's word, obeying God's word. He decides that he is not going to take a spouse who has been unfaithful to him. He decides that he is going to divorce her. But notice here it says that he is going to do so quietly. He's not going to bring her and shame her publicly, putting her to open shame, exposing her sin. In fact, he could have brought her in front of the whole town and asked for her to be put on trial for adultery. In Joseph's day, under the Old Testament covenant, adultery was a capital offense because the family unit was the, the bedrock of society. And so adultery is, the, is, is tantamount to treason because it, it, is, it is undermining the whole uh, institution on, on which the whole civilization is built. We don't view the family that way today. We don't view adultery that way today. Um, again, I'm, I don't think that we've improved on this. I'm just telling you that it's different. However, he chooses not to pursue that, that course of action. Maybe, maybe he got word. Maybe she spoke to him and said, listen, the, the Holy Spirit overshadowed me and... God put a baby in my womb. And so maybe he thinks not only is my wife a liar, but she's a crazy liar. I, I don't know. However, he, he chooses, he's not going down this path with this woman who thinks she has God in her belly. He chooses to divorce her and he chooses to do it quietly. He chooses to follow through on the Old Testament law to not... Uh, Mary, someone who's been unfaithful to him. No doubt this would have been a hard and difficult thing to do. But notice Joseph's character in that he chooses to do it not publicly but quietly. He chooses to do a, a, the right thing in a tender way. I think we could learn from that in 2022 in a culture that is so hardened that we as God's people, even though at times we may need to do difficult things and say difficult things, because sometimes the truth is difficult. But we can learn from Joseph in doing hard and difficult things in a tender way. We don't have to pursue the, the hardest and, and most severe course of action in every situation. We can be gracious. And here I think Joseph is displaying his character in being a gracious man. In verse 20, it tells us how an angel appears to him in a dream and says, Do not fear. Don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. If, I, I don't know about you guys, but I, that would have kind of made me afraid. Right? What does this mean? What does this mean that... I, okay, I understood it when I thought my wife was unfaithful. So I'm not, to, I'm not to fear to take Mary because she hasn't been unfaithful. Okay, that's a relief. But now you're telling me that God is in her? That 
How do we do this? What does it look like that my wife is bearing Emmanuel, God with us? What does it look like? What does it mean that my wife is with child from the Holy Spirit? How is this going to work? So while on the one hand it would have been a great relief for him to find out that, hey, my wife hasn't been unfaithful, that's a relief, but on the other hand, she's carrying the Son of God? So it answered one question. At the same time, a thousand other questions would have flooded his mind, not least of which, how do we raise God? What's that going to be like? What about, am I qualified for this task? Am I up for this? A million questions would have been flying through his mind, but nevertheless, verse 24, when Joseph awoke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He obeyed. In spite of all of the issues, in spite of all of the complications, in spite of all of the implications, what does this mean? What could this mean? What will this look like? He obeyed the Lord. And I think a lot of times we too can have a lot of questions about what it will look like to obey the Lord. What will this mean? But we can learn from both Joseph and Mary's obedience to the Lord. I want you to notice here that this obedience would have been a costly obedience. They would have paid a price to obey the Lord. It wouldn't have come without a price. Both Joseph and Mary. You see, Joseph, obeying the Lord, taking Mary as his wife, he will be viewed as, by the community, he will be viewed as either a fool or a liar. He'll be viewed as a fool or a liar. Either he's a fool for for taking a, a, a wife that has been unfaithful to him, Or he will be considered a liar, that he truly is the father, but he's lied to everyone and said that he wasn't. In the eyes of the community, Joseph's reputation will be ruined as he will be known as a fool and a liar. And in fact, we see that this story about Jesus was even circulated in his day, as in John 8.44 When Jesus is arguing with the Pharisees, the Pharisees tell Jesus, we weren't born of sexual immorality. That's an accusation. A barb they throw at Jesus when they're arguing against him. This story about Jesus' birth, this story about uh, this, this cloud, if you will, of accusation that surrounds Mary and Joseph, this follows Jesus through his whole life So that even the Pharisees, when they want to try to to trap Jesus, they use this as an insult, essentially calling Jesus a bastard. So Joseph will be viewed as a fool or a liar. Jesus will grow up under this cloud of infidelity. 
Mary's reputation will be shattered and she will be viewed as one of the worst sinners committing one of the worst sins that could possibly committed adultery. It is a costly obedience. And we need to understand this too, that obeying God is often costly. It's often costly. I know we live in a culture that for the last 30, 40 years, probably my whole lifetime, the, the sort of culture of, of the Christian message in America has been one of easy believism. That you just, just believe in Jesus and everything's going to be great. Your life will get better. You'll have all of your dreams come true. Jesus is kind of viewed as the the fairy godmother from Disney movies. He's the one that makes all your wishes and your dreams come true. That's the kind of rubbish that has filled, for most part, the, the bookshelves in Christian bookstores. This sort of easy believism. Jesus is just the sort of the icing on the cake of life. There's no price to pay to follow Christ. This easy believism. Is that consistent with what the Bible teaches? Well, no, in fact, in fact, the argument can be made that your life many times gets demonstrably harder when you come to Christ. Two people said amen. <laughs> it, it, you can actually follow, uh, track the, the, the people who follow God in the Bible, and oftentimes their lives get more difficult. It's easier to live in the world as a worldly person than to follow Christ in this broken world. Flip with me to Matthew chapter 10. course, we'll get to Matthew chapter 10 at some point, but I'm going to skip ahead here just for a minute. I, I want to show you the, the kinds of words that Jesus has to say about this. What Jesus says to the easy believism Christianity, verse 34, Matthew 10, verse 34. Jesus says, do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. What does a sword do? It cuts. It cuts one thing from another. A sword, it literally divides. That's the point of a sword. Used as a weapon, used as an instrument, used as a tool, but however it's being used, the point of a sword is to divide one thing from another, to cut things from one from another. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword, for I have come to set man against his father, and daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. 
And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Why is this? Well, because when you decide to follow Christ, you are separated from every other allegiance, from every other bond. We are part of his family. You see, when... If, if our family members are not Christians, if, if they don't follow Christ, they're, they're part. There's two kingdoms. There's the kingdom of light and there's the kingdom of darkness. There's the kingdom of Christ and there's the kingdom of Satan. And you belong to one or the other. And if your family, if you're, as he says here, your father, if your mother-in-law is, is not part of the kingdom, if you are going to follow Christ, it will separate you from them. There will be a division that takes place. A person's enemies will be those of his own household. Verse 37, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son and daughter more than me is not worthy of me. What's Jesus saying here? Is he saying that we shouldn't love our family? No, but he's saying that he has to be the number one. That if we love anything or anyone more than Christ, what are we? We are idolaters. And you can make anything or anyone into an idol. Jesus says that there will be no idolaters in my kingdom. That you must forsake all to follow me. Verse 38. Whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Jesus says there's, there's, there's an eternal perspective here. There's this perspective on eternity that we need to have. And that if we will follow Christ, we will truly fulfill the purpose that God has for us in this life. And we will live a life, we will live out the eternal life that Jesus brings now and that will carry us into eternity. But if we do not take up our cross, which is a picture of a dead man walking, carrying your cross was the same as living on death row, that your old life is gone. It is obliterated. It is, there there is no life back there. It's only the future ahead. And that to follow Christ means that we have died to this life, but that we have been raised. We have been, we are risen now to a new life with Christ. But this new life demands total allegiance to Christ and Christ alone. And so this obeying God, it is costly. Taking up our cross, it requires a price to pay to follow Jesus. However, I want to show you something, and Jesus says it here. He says it so clearly. Whoever finds his life, talking about making a good life for themselves in the world, they will actually lose their life. But whoever loses his life for my sake will Find it. That yes, there is a price to pay. Yes, obeying God is often costly. However, 
Obeying God produces long-term blessing. There are short-term prices to pay for following Jesus, but they produce long-term blessings. And that's what we have to keep in mind. We have to keep that in mind. As, as following Christ will cost us, we will have to say no to things that, that other people say yes to. We, we will have to uninvite ourselves from, from certain activities and, and certain things that maybe even in our flesh we still wish that we could partake of. But the Holy Spirit and through his word is leading us in the paths of righteousness. And so for that we say no. I follow Christ. And so there is a price. There is a cost. But it produces a long-term benefit. It produces long-term blessing. Hebrews chapter 12. I'm going to flip over there quickly. Hebrews 12. Hebrews 12 and verse 11. Just going to look at this one verse. The context is beautiful. Uh, I encourage you to take time, go back and read Hebrews chapter 12. But verse 11, it says this. Now let's look at verse 10, sorry. Speaking of earthly fathers, the writer of Hebrews says that they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he, that's God our Father in heaven, he disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. In verse 11, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Amen. Yes, there is a short-term price to pay, but it's always to receive long-term benefits. Yes, we must say no to things. Yes, we must discipline ourselves. Yes, we must orient our lives and our family around, a, uh, around the Word, around being led by the Spirit, around righteousness that the world and the culture and those that surround us and even our own friends and family and coworkers may look in from the outside and say, that's weird, that's strange, that's bizarre. However, there is the long-term view in mind, and that is God's blessing. You see, if we follow the pattern of the world, guess what we're going to get? We're going to get the results of the world. We're going to get sin. We're going to get shame. We're going to get brokenness. And the wages of sin, what does it produce in our life? Ultimately, death. And so we as God's people who have been given God's word, who have been filled with God's spirit, are called to live lives of holiness separated from the world that the, the wider culture around us will look on and say, we are crazy. But the world, my friends, is upside down. And we're called to live right side up lives. And to those who are upside down, who are living a life upside down, when they see people who are right side up, you know what they think we are? Upside down. But if we want the, 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 the blessings of the Spirit of God, 
If we want the fruit of the Spirit in our lives, love and joy and peace and patience and goodness and self-control, if we want to see those manifest, the kingdom of God manifest in every area of life, in our marriage, in our family, in our parenting, in our career, in our relationships, if we want to see the kingdom of God manifest, we must obey the King. It's when we obey the king that the kingdom comes in and it comes in with all of its fruits and all of its blessings. And so Joseph and Mary obey God and it is costly to them, but of course it produces long-term blessing in their life. The blessings and the joys of, of caring for the Messiah, bringing him into the world. I'm looking at my notes, and it says I have two more points today. And I'm just wondering how in the world I'm going to do this. I'm just talking out. I'm just thinking out loud right now. So that's the background. I'm gonna, we're going to press on today, because if I start kicking stuff to I'll do it next week, we will never finish Matthew. So that's the background. Number two, <clears throat> number two is the king's identity. These will be shorter, the king's identity. No, let's stay on number one for a second. Listen, God is calling us to make sacrifices for him. And so I would encourage you to lean into that. When you feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit, though the whole world may think you're crazy, though your family may think you're crazy, lean into it. It will produce blessing in your life. We don't always understand it. We don't always can always see the blessing it will produce. But like Joseph and Mary, we must humble ourselves and just say, I'm going to obey the Lord. And God will produce blessing in your life. So I would ask you, what is God asking you? What sacrifices is, God's, is God asking you to make? Uh, for me and my family right now, we're, we're in the process of, of reorienting our family around some different things. Of, of, of trying to implement different things in our family culture, making sacrifices in certain areas so that we can see a greater manifestation of the kingdom of God in our lives. We're going through that process right now. Now, if I told you what you were, we were doing, I bet half of you would think that we were crazy. And I'm not going to tell you because I'm not trying to lay some sort of legalistic trip on you telling you you have to live life a certain way, et cetera, et cetera. But what you must do is not live life like the bells, but what you must do is follow what God is leading you to do. And so I would just simply say, what is it that the Lord is leading you to do in your family, in your relationships? Where do you need to submit to God's word? How have you been resisting the work of the Holy Spirit? Maybe you've been even comparing yourselves to other people and other families and saying, well, they do it this way and they do it that way. Listen, every family is different. Every family culture is different. Every, every child is different. God, especially the parents I'm talking, God has entrusted these children to you. And what they may need may be different than your neighbors, may be different than your, their cousins. It may be totally different but he's given them to you. So seek the Lord for your kids and try and follow best his leading and he's going to help you do it. Okay, now I'm ready to move on to number two. The king's identity, the king's identity. In verse one through 17, Matthew gave us the, the, 
physical lineage, the human lineage. He calls Jesus the son of David, the son of Abraham in Matthew chapter 1. But in verse 18, he tells us, actually, he also has a divine lineage. A divine lineage, not only a human lineage, but a divine lineage. That this is not just any baby. That this is the Christ child. He's not only the son of Abraham. He's not only the son of David. This baby is the son of God. He tells us Mary's to be found. She's found with child of the Holy Spirit. He's up front with us about this. In verse 23, this child is called Emmanuel, which means God with us. That Jesus Christ is truly and fully God and truly and fully man. And here Matthew presents to us his human lineage and his divine lineage. Jesus is God with us. You see, Jesus did not originate. The Son of God did not originate in Mary's womb. Jesus is the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, who existed from all eternity past, who John in his gospel says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And through this incredible miracle of the Holy Spirit, this second divine person of the Trinity enters into human existence, not, not losing his divine nature, but adding to his divine nature a human nature so that he in his person can reconcile sinful humanity back to God. Through his human mother, Jesus is human, but he had no earthly father. This, of course, means that Jesus was sinless. He entered into the world without a sin nature as we inherit our sin nature from our first father, Adam, and through Adam. But Jesus is not a descendant of Adam by nature. He's a descendant of God by nature. And so there's this beauty and perfection in the gospel where God had said in Genesis 3.15, that one day there would come a redeemer who would crush the head of Satan. And this redeemer, he says, would be the seed of the woman. Which is really bizarre to us because the seed normally comes from the man. But he tells Adam and Eve in the garden when they sin that one day there's coming a redeemer who will crush the head of Satan and he will be of the seed of the woman. And for 4,000 years, God made these promises. He wove them together, these promises of redemption. Now, there's this beautiful mystery here. I don't understand this. I don't understand how God did this. And even if God wanted to explain it to me, like I could even fathom it. There's people who struggle with the concept of the virgin birth. They say, how could this have happened? I say, I don't know how it happened. I don't. I couldn't explain it to you. There are people who will say, well, I can't accept Christianity because I can't get behind this idea of the virgin birth. Listen, if you can accept the first verse of the Bible, you can accept the rest of it. 
But if you struggle with that first verse, you're going to struggle with all of it. The first verse of the Bible, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God is a spiritual being who exists outside of time and space and the natural world. And, and, and he, through the miracle and the providence and power that only he possesses, spoke the natural world into existence. If you can believe that, it's no big deal for God to put a baby in a woman's, a woman's tummy. That's not hard. And so if you can accept, there's lots of things in our Christian faith that we don't understand fully. But it doesn't mean that we can't benefit from them. There are many mysteries. How did God create the universe out of nothing? I don't know. I believe it by faith. The three-in-one God that we worship. How, how is it that there's one God and three persons and, and, and no distinctions but distinctions? If you start thinking about it, your mind starts to hurt. What about the, the concept of regeneration? That without the life of God, we're spiritually dead. But through a sovereign act of, of God and God alone, he, he causes us to be born again through his son, Jesus Christ, at the hearing of the preaching of the gospel. That's a great mystery. We don't understand that. Yet, here's what we need to understand. Our inability to comprehend fully does not prevent us from partaking in it. It doesn't prevent us from gaining the benefits of it. I don't understand how the earth orbits the sun. I don't understand how, how the moon orbits the earth. I don't understand the, the tilt of the earth's axis and, and how fast it spins. And I don't need to understand all of that to understand if I drop something, it's going to fall to the ground. That there's gravitational force. I, I don't understand it, but it doesn't mean I don't live in it and ex experience the benefit of it. I'm very glad that I'm not just floating off into space right now. So the virgin birth, do we understand it? No, we don't. Do we need to understand it? What we need to understand is that Jesus was virgin born. What we don't need to understand is how it happened. The implications of the virgin birth are very important. One, that Jesus had a divine nature... Because God truly is his father. There is no earthly father. Because of this, Jesus had no inherited sin from Adam. We need to understand the virgin birth because it tells us that Jesus had a human nature. That he was born of the woman. That he wasn't just some sort of manifestation of God on earth. He truly was human And this is important because for Jesus to reconcile us back to the father... As the representative of the human race, the second Adam, he had to be fully man, yet to endure the full wrath of God against all sin, he had to be fully God himself. And so if you don't have the virgin birth, you don't have the gospel. The virgin birth is at the heart of the gospel, that God became a man, lived life without sin, died to redeem sinners rose again in victory from death, is seated right now in heaven, ruling and reigning. If you have no virgin birth, you have no gospel. Jesus then becomes just a good man who can save no one. If he's not the God-man, there's no salvation. The virgin birth, though we might not understand it, the implications of it 
are very real. And so the attacks against the virgin birth from the outside and even from what would be considered the inside of Christianity and the liberal strain of Christianity, there are are attacks on the gospel itself. And again, if you can believe the first verse in the Bible, you can believe everything else that it contains. So that's the king's identity. Who is this king? This king is Emmanuel, God with us. And finally, the king's mission. We see this here in short. I'm going to invite the worship team to come and get ready for us to take communion. The king's mission. We see this in verse 21 as the angel tells Joseph what to name Jesus. He says, you will call his name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. The meaning of the word Jesus, it is the rendering of the the Hebrew name Yahshua, which literally means the Lord saves. The Lord saves. So even in his name, the name Jesus, even in that name, the reason why he came to earth is there for all of us. He came to save his people from their sins. Who did he come to save? His people. His people. You see, there's salvation in no other name except the name of Jesus. For all who believe in him in faith, who turn from their sin and repentance, will receive salvation in Christ. He will save his people from their sins. You see, the salvation that Jesus comes to bring, it is a particular salvation for a particular people. Jesus comes to redeem his bride, the bride of Christ. Those who have turned to Christ in faith will have their sins forgiven. But those who reject the Son of God, the writer of Hebrews tells us there remains no offering for sin. There's one sacrifice that was made once and for all, and it is Jesus. It is Jesus. We've all sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death. But Jesus came that we would have life and life more abundantly. And Jesus came in the greatest act of humility that the world has ever known. No one has ever stooped so low as the Lord Jesus stooped, leaving heaven's throne to be born of peasants in a manger, to live a life without sin, perfectly fulfilling the law of God, to go to the cross, to lay his life down, and to have our sin placed upon him, to have the sins of his people placed upon him. And so I would urge you today, if you have not put your faith in Christ, the Bible says today is the day of salvation. There is only one Savior. There is only one Messiah. There is only one King, and his name is Jesus. And who is this King? He is God with us. And why did he come? He came to save his people from their sins. And the question that lies before you today, are you part of his chosen people?
His chosen people are marked by repentance and faith. Repentance and faith. And so I would urge you today, if you've been on the fence about following Christ, if you've been on the fence about the gospel, if you've been on the fence, don't let another second go by of not following Jesus, of not being part of his family. Don't waste another moment of your life. Truly, it is in fellowship and communion and covenant with God through his son Christ that we truly find the meaning and purpose of our lives. Don't waste another moment. Make today the day that you put your faith in Christ. Amen. I invite you to stand with us this morning. We're getting ready to partake of communion today. Communion represents that sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross. Jesus told his followers, his, those who believe in him, to do this in remembrance of him. And so we're going to remember the Lord. We're going to remember his sacrifice as we take of this table together. This is for believers. This is for those who have put their faith in Christ. This is part of how we say we are Christian as we partake of the Lord's Supper together. This is one way that we profess our faith, that we are part of God's covenant family. The Bible also tells us this is a time of reflection and a time of repentance. What is the Lord calling you to? How is the Lord leading you? Is there an area that you need to walk in obedience that you have yet to, to, to surrender to the Lord? Do it today. Make today an altar unto the Lord as you come and receive the elements. Say, today's the day we're, we're laying this down and we're picking this up. And the life of Christ will be manifest in your life. And finally, this is the time of worship. And so after we take the elements, we take them back to our seats, we pray together. Let's enter into song again and close out our time of worship together. Father, we thank you for the word. We thank you that it is that lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Lord, help us to live for you and you alone. Lord, you've called us to live a life of obedience and to walk in your blessing. Lord, though we don't always see the end, you ask us to take out steps of faith. So Lord, I pray through the power of your spirit that you would enable us to live the life you've called us to live for your glory and your glory alone. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.